Well, good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday. That means it's Bible study, and I'm very glad that you all have joined me again today. We've got a great study today on a pretty interesting chapter. Um, I was just saying this morning that this is a very odd chapter. Um, I had to work a little bit <laughs> on this one, and I hope that it makes sense to all of you. Um, if you've read ahead of time, you know that this is perhaps a little more opaque I'm a little more dense than usual. Um, we get into some numerology that is slightly different than the normal narrative stuff that we've been looking at, um, but I think it's really gonna be worth it. So, if this is your first time joining us, I'm very glad you're here. And if you have not yet joined our newsletter, I want to make sure that you're on our email list, that you're getting regular reminders from Meredith every Monday about what we will study with links for the different platforms where you can join us for Bible study. And so do send a note to Meredith Rose. She will be in the chat features if you're using Facebook or YouTube, or if you go to our website, stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study. So that's stmichael.org RBS. You can see Meredith's email address there. Please send her a note, add yourself to our email list so that you get reminders about this study each week. And per the normal, I want to encourage you to say hello to each other. There are ways to comment either on Facebook or YouTube, and I want you to say hi to each other because we are still separate. We're still socially distant, but that doesn't mean we have to be disconnected. So let us know you're here. Let us know where you're from. If this is not your normal faith community, if St. Michael is not where you worship on Sunday, then let us know where you're coming from. And also, hey, why not give us a try? Every Sunday at 9, 11, and 8, we are streaming excellent worship services from St. Michael here in Dallas, and we would love for you to be a part of that faith community. All right, let's open with a prayer and we will get rolling. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together as one people to study your word. May you help open us up, put down all the things that weigh on us, that cause us anxiety and concern and worry. Help us to put all of that down so that we can make space for your spirit and that your spirit would fill us up, that we would know your presence, we would feel your peace, and we will be transformed into your hands and feet of love out in the world. God, as we begin this study, we hold before you all those who need special prayers. Today, we especially remember those who need healing prayers, your healing touch. May those who need your healing be surrounded by people who can care for them, support them, and love them and help them to know that they are never alone and that you walk with them as you do each one of us every step of the way. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody. Like I said, say hi to each other in the comment field and also ask questions. We will have maybe a little bit extra time. You know, I'm not entirely sure how much I'm gonna talk today. Um, I could get rolling and who knows, um, I could also kind of cut it off with a little bit of extra time at the end of the day. So if you've got some questions that have been percolating, um, wonderings that you just kind of want to vet a little bit, then write those out in the comment fields. Um, I should note that if you're watching from the St. Michael website, you can't make comments. Live stream from our website is really just to be received. In order to make comments and ask questions live, 
You need to be on one of our social media platforms, either Facebook or YouTube, but you're always welcome to submit questions over email during the week. So after the study is over, if you've been watching from our website, which is a great way to consume the study, then send Meredith a note. She gathers up those questions so that I can hopefully address a few at the beginning of each week's study. And this week, we have quite a few from the week that I want to jump into. So one of the questions we have comes from Lynn, and she says, I thought Daniel and Revelations were written in code and with these visions and symbols in order to outwit governments from knowing what they were talking about, but it sounds like maybe not that way for Daniel. Why not just say what it is you're saying instead of using goats and rams and horns and things like that? So Lynn is referencing last week's study where we were looking at the ram and the goat and the way that the horns indicate different leaders and all that sort of stuff. So. It's a very good question. Why not just say what you want to say? A couple ideas. I will start by saying I don't have the answer, but I have a few ideas. One idea is, as Lynn notes, perhaps this is a way of writing in code to other people who share your beliefs such that beliefs can be shared, ideas can be shared among the believers, without perhaps calling their political loyalties into question. So Daniel is, is a little bit of a different case, but take Revelation. If you were to explicitly write against the Roman Empire, it is very possible that those letters would be intercepted and prevented from getting into the hands of fellow believers. So John was almost certainly writing in isolation, on an island, in prison, when he wrote Revelation, and getting that letter out to people who needed to hear the encouragement would not have been a given. If it had been explicit that he was writing over and against Rome, in essence, encouraging his brothers and sisters to resist Rome and stay faithful to God, it's very possible that that would have been read and intercepted and prevented from ever getting past the Roman guards. In fact, we don't know what else could have been written, what other revelations could have been written down and lost to history because they perhaps weren't quite coded enough. That's a good idea. And I think that's definitely one that a lot of people would understand and even subscribe to. I also think that Daniel represents a, a style of writing, a style of literature that celebrates the metaphorical and the allegorical and the fantasy of these visions. So it's not actually meant to be super clear. There is a sense of poetry about these visions. You know, if you ever read really good poetry, the reader themselves can interpret the words however they need in a particular place in a particular time. Prose and narrative explained a little too much leaves very little room for interpretation. When we use poetry, and really Daniel in Revelation is poetry, a certain style of poetry, we allow the words to speak as they need to speak anytime anyone reads them. I think that's really the desire here. 
I want to acknowledge that yes, if we want to say that these are pure revelations given in these exact words meant for us to read them in these exact words from God, that's okay. I think that you all know me by now well enough to know that I think these revelations are true, but I also believe that they are written and therefore interpreted and inspired by real people. Which means, did God literally say these words to Daniel or to John? Eh. Are the ideas of these visions authentic and genuine? Absolutely. And so, in a sense, they are true revelations. They have resonated over time such that they've provided inspiration to the people who have read them, to believers who have read them. And that's where chapter 9 is going to really land today, is in its inspiration. We're going to have to zigzag around to get there, but we're going to get there. We have another question here from Sarah, and she writes, Does the condition of our world with so much oppression, personal and environmental degradation, suggest that we as Christians should be undertaking the what went wrong kind of analysis that the Israelites are struggling with in their exile? Which is a really excellent question. And she goes on um, with a few more examples. I've noted at the beginning of this study that with the exile, it's very important for us to understand that the Israelites had strayed away from God enough to where prophets like Jeremiah, and we're going to talk about Jeremiah today, tried to encourage the Israelites to repent and return, turn back to God, really get themselves back on the right path, or else something bad's going to happen. And ultimately, the exile is the something bad that happened. So when the Israelites go into exile, they do begin to ask questions like, why did this happen? How have we gone so far away from our core? How have we strayed so far from God and what can we do about it? I think Sarah asked a very good question. There is certainly no doubt that we are, as a culture, as a society, less than perfect, right? We are messy by virtue of our humanity. We are imperfect by virtue of our humanity, but it does seem like there is a lot about our social order that finds its way too far afield from God. Now, I want to be very careful as I walk this fine line because it's very easy for people to hearken back to the good old days and periods of time in the past where there is a perception that things were better, things were simpler, people were good, that life was good, we treated each other well, there was a level of security, there was a godliness or a faith anchor um, that was created in our social order. That is, a, that is a lovely, romantic way of looking at the past. That's also a very privileged way of looking at the past I think for some people, the past may have been that way. That may have been true. For most people, the past was not that way. And we have to be very careful about allowing nostalgia to guide the way that we perceive history. I think that we are in a period of time where we are struggling, yes, we are uncertain, yes, and we wrestle with ideas, of course. 
But I think that a lot of that struggle and a lot of that wrestling actually has to do with a very deep desire to get to a good place. Now, we may define good very differently than our neighbors, but I think the struggle for the goodness for most people, not all, but for most, is genuine. That there is a desire for goodness. There is a desire for an anchor that is beyond us, that is, in a sense, Ah, I, I am struggling not to say divine or holy or sacred, even though I think that it is for a lot of people, um, because I do think that a desire for a lot of people is actually security and predictability and isn't godly. And I don't really want to go too far into that. I mean, some of you who know me well enough know that I love politics, and so I could wax on for a long time about this issue. But I do think that there, is, there are some people who are seeking security. But I think most people are actually seeking something good, something right, something honorable that helps to bring about a loving character in our social order that really does honor people. And I hope that we can move more and more into that in the future. I certainly don't think we're seeing most of that right now, um, but I also think that what we see, kind of what we perceive and receive in media is a very small sliver of the actual population of our country. I think that what we don't see is the great majority of people who are actually pretty good, that they're good at their core, that they would like to be kind, and they would like to live in a way that honors other people, and we just don't seem to see that because that isn't quite as sensational as other things. So, okay, I'm gonna stop there um, before I go way off, way off the rails. Um, and just simply say that asking those questions about perhaps what went wrong is what I think is happening for a lot of people right now. I think that in a general sense, the average person is very willing to ask those questions. I do think that life can be heavy enough so that wondering about the nuance of what went wrong can feel like a bridge too far. Um, it's almost too heavy and too painful. But I do think most people would like to start a asking those questions. And I think that's what we struggle with here at St. Michael. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that we ask the big questions and wonder the, about the big ideas in order to be the body of Christ here in the world in order to help build up God's kingdom. And no one of us does that on our own. We do that together. Your time here in this Bible study is really about asking these big questions, not just to say, you went to Bible study, aren't you a good person? No, we do this. We study, we wrestle, and we dig in order to actually change the way we live. And that is my greatest hope. Um, and occasionally I get letters from people who say such and such happened at the grocery store or I was in a conversation with a relative or who knows. And this idea from Bible study popped into my mind and I actually said something I wouldn't have normally said or I thought something that I wouldn't have normally thought 
or actually did something I wouldn't normally do and I cannot tell you how gratifying it is to see God working in those amazing ways, to see God working on us, working in us and through us in the world. It's just great. Um, Okay, so good enough. We're going to jump into Daniel chapter 9 now. And chapter 9 is one that has been debated by scholars for a long time. I want to start off by saying there is less general scholarly agreement about chapter 9 than there is about much of the rest of the book of Daniel. Um, There is a very important critical question about authorship and dating of this chapter. Linguistically, this chapter is markedly different than other parts of the book of Daniel, which has made many scholars, and I think I agree with this, propose an idea that this chapter, more than any of the other chapters of Daniel, were really worked on and tweaked and changed over time in order to make what is presented as a prophetic vision clearer and clearer or more and more accurate to what actually happened after the exile. That does not mean that it isn't valuable to us, but I do want to note that the way phrases are used and the grammar and all that sort of stuff indicates that chapter 9 is somewhat of an outlier when it comes to the rest of the book of Daniel. So just hold that in your mind because ultimately we're going to look at three different ways to understand the book of Daniel. And we're going to do so in two parts. The first part we're going to look at is the first section of chapter 9, which is Daniel's prayer. We're going to pick that apart and do Daniel's prayer first. And the second is Gabriel's interpretation or Gabriel's response to Daniel's prayer. And we get into a prophetic vision that's a little dicey and confusing. Okay, so let's start with what is mostly the easy stuff. Turn to chapter 9, verse 1, and we're going to jump in. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, by birth a Mede, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, pause. (laughs) We're going to take it little by little. So these first two verses indicate what's happening now. So, as we saw in chapter 8, we had kind of gone back in time to the time of Belshazzar. Now we've stepped forward again, but it's still behind chapter 7. We're now back with Darius the Mede, Darius the First. As I noted a few weeks ago, there is no historic record of a Darius the Mede. (laughs) It's a little strange, I know. Belshazzar was a real person. Cyrus the Great, who comes with Persians, um, leading the Persians, they are real people, historic figures. We can actually verify that they existed. Not so with Darius. Darius is, for all intents and purposes, potentially made up. Um, And that's okay, because I noted before that the Medes are related to the Persians. And so, in a sense, this is almost like the in-between period where the Babylonians have been effectively defeated. 
by the Persians, and then the Persians have come along and are ruling, but they've not yet released the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem, right? It's not a big period of time, but there's that little period of time where they've not yet been released. So maybe Darius kind of fits in there for a minute. We don't know. So Daniel is there now with Darius again, and Daniel is reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. Okay, so the exile's a big deal, right? There are prophets before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile. Jeremiah is one of those pre-exilic, before the exile prophets. And Jeremiah's words would have been written down and would have been shared as something sacred among the Israelites in exile. Now, Jeremiah's words were almost certainly not written down in the same version we know them that exist in scripture today, but they would have been written down in some way. Someone would have recorded Jeremiah in some capacity. And so Daniel is likely doing a little Bible study. I mean, effectively what Daniel's doing here is he's kind of gone off to do what he probably did every day, which is reflect a little bit on sacred scripture, maybe meditate, pray, all that good stuff. And so it's as if it's just another day and Daniel's reading Jeremiah and all of a sudden, boom, epiphany. And Daniel understands something he just didn't understand before. So Daniel reads this passage of Jeremiah and gathers that the exile is going to be 70 years. Like all of a sudden, it comes together. Two plus two equals four. They just, they figure it out. And Daniel gets that they've been in exile about that long. You know, he's likely been in exile at this point for almost 70 years, 68-ish years. And now he's putting two and two together. So what I want to do is pause for a minute here and actually read some of the passages of Jeremiah that are referenced by Daniel coming up. Right? So where Daniel gets that 70 years idea. So in Jeremiah, just make a note of this. We'll, you can read it later. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, this is what Jeremiah says. Now remember, he's talking to the Israelites before the exile with the hope that they'll repent and not actually go into exile, but that didn't happen. So Jeremiah says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Okay, so in chapter 25, verse 11, Jeremiah effectively predicts the 70-year exile of Babylon. Now, all of you sharp Bible scholars should know that it's very likely Jeremiah would have been an oral tradition, maybe bits and pieces written down, but as I noted, the book of Jeremiah that we currently have in our Bible is one that would not have been codified or finished until after the exile. So who knows perhaps what this idea was, but somehow it became 70 years and lo and behold, the exile was about 70 years. It just fits very nicely. Later in Jeremiah, this is what he says. This is chapter 29, verse 10. Thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, 
I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Hey, Daniel is likely reading these bits of Jeremiah. And listen to what he says. I have plans for you. I mean, we all know that verse from Jeremiah, right? For surely I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. We'd love to put that on a coffee mug. But Jeremiah is not talking about... Jeremiah is talking about a specific group of people in a specific point in time, okay? So we need to be very clear that although Jeremiah's words can certainly apply to us in a general God loves everybody sense, Jeremiah is talking to the Israelites in the southern kingdom prior to their exile. So he's talking about those people at that time, and he says, if you don't do all of this, then you're going to go to Babylon for 70 years, and once the 70 years is completed, I'll visit you, but I will find you and restore your fortunes when you call upon me and come and pray to me. Okay, so Daniel sees, wait, 70 years. We've been here about 70 years in Babylon. Yes, that's what Jeremiah said. And then he says that he's going to come, that God will come and deliver us once someone prays to God that God will hear and deliver. So Daniel says, I'm here. It's been almost 70 years. We're in Babylon. Maybe I can be the person who prays and begins that deliverance out of exile. All right, so Daniel says, I'm in. So let's turn back to Daniel, verse four. This is Daniel speaking. I prayed to the Lord my God and made my confession saying, Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. We'll pause there again. Daniel begins this long, eloquent prayer in order to begin a process of deliverance out of exile from the Babylonians. Daniel's prayer is one of those great prayers in the Bible, and his prayer follows a very clear order. From verses 4 to 19, Daniel's prayer follows a fourfold order, invocation, confession, acknowledgement of divine judgment, and then a prayer for mercy. So in other words, Daniel says, hey God, that's part one, then Daniel says, we did some bad stuff, part two. Part three is we understand and we accept the judgment, the punishment of exile for the bad stuff that our ancestors did. Part three and part four is, but God, you are a good God. We love you. There are people here who have kept your commandments and would you not deliver these good people in order to reestablish your kingdom on earth, okay? There's the four parts of Daniel's prayer through verse 19. Daniel wants to be active in the deliverance of the people out of exile. And Daniel believes that the prophecy, the prophecies of Jeremiah articulate the length of time and he is faithful to that length of time. Now, before we go any farther, I want to note that numbers in the Bible 
are often not meant to be literal. That numbers in the Bible are often meant to imply something beyond their literal values. So when we see numbers, particularly holy numbers, 3, 7, 12, 40, numbers like that, they almost certainly don't mean a literal length of time. And instead, they mean a holy amount of time. So 70 years is one of those moments when literally 70 years, maybe, but also could it mean simply a holy number of years? And by holy number of years, I mean a number of years in which the work, uh, what do I wanna say? In which God's work on the people can really take root, can really become transformative, right? 70 years, effectively means that every adult that had strayed from God would now have died. It's kind of like 40 years in the wilderness with the Israelites and Moses. 40 years may very certainly not be literal years, but 40 years is enough time to where all of the adults in the community who would have made those mistakes would have died off, and all of the innocent children and more would have grown up and now they've got another chance to do the right thing. Similar in the exile, you've got 770 and that 70 years is enough time for all the people who made mistakes to be gone and for all the people who have inherited the commandments and the laws and the identity of God to effectively own their responsibility and the responsibility of their ancestors in what went wrong. So let's look at Daniel here, um, or I will say that all briefly in a different way. Numbers in the Bible are almost certainly not meant to be predictive or chronological. Numbers in the Bible are really meant to be narrative by kind of arranging events in a way that makes sense, and that's chronographical. Chronography, is when you understand past events as having valuable purpose. And so as I've noted before, Daniel was finished in the second century BCE. Jeremiah was likely finished sometime around then as well, definitely after the exile. And so hindsight of this oral tradition allowed people to begin to piece ideas together and to say, oh, well, Jeremiah said that and look at what happened. Jeremiah must have meant, right? So that's a chronographical understanding of numbers in the Bible. It doesn't mean that the message doesn't have wonderful gifts for us, but it does mean, I think, that we are also called to be wise enough to not understand the numbers as being directly predictive, if that makes sense. Um, Elizabeth asks, um, so ages are not thought to be literal either? Correct. If you go back to Genesis, um, last year, our study of Genesis, you will have heard me say multiple times that the long lives of some of the patriarchs in Genesis in particular and in others around scripture are not meant to be literal ages. I mean, oftentimes I, I have seen people try to do all kinds of odd gymnastics to try and explain how people used to be able to live six, seven hundred plus years, but now we don't. And 
no. People didn't live hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years ago, and only now we can live to maybe 100 at best. No, that's not how that works. Ages were not meant to be literal. Ages were meant to imply something true. And so when people lived long lives, the truth there is that their lives were long, really long. And part of that is to imply that a life lived with God is a life that is lived well. That's the encouragement. It's not that if you do the right thing or eat the right thing or whatever that you might live to be 700 years old. No. It's really about the idea behind the longevity, not the literal number of years. And hang with me on this because the second half of chapter 9 really puts that to the test. So I'm looking at the time. Yeah, we'll do this real fast. Let's just bang through Daniel's prayer a little bit um, so that we have at least said it out loud. So like I said, Daniel accepts the sinful behavior of the Israelites. Let's just read this together. Verse 11, Daniel says, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. So the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. So Daniel accepts the sinful behavior of the Israelites, saying, yes, there is a righteousness in the judgment that has come upon us. But Daniel also appeals to God's mercy. Look at verse 18. Daniel says, Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation in the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of your righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act and do not delay. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel's prayer to God goes through all of the great steps, and in the end he says, God, we are your people. We are your chosen people. We did wrong. We acknowledge the wrong we did. We accept the punishment for the wrong, but now is the time to restore us. And in restoring us, your people, you are restored. Your holy name, your authority, your power on earth is restored. So quite literally, the Israelites understand that leaving the exile in Babylon, going back to Jerusalem, and rebuilding the temple is reestablishing God on earth. Remember that the temple is understood to be God's actual home on earth, where God literally touches the earth. And so Daniel is appealing to God for God to give them the opportunity to reestablish his power and his authority on earth. Okay, that's the end of the first section of Daniel's prayer. Now we get to Gabriel's message, his interpretation, his vision, the prophecy from God that Daniel receives. Okay. <laughs> Here we get into a section of Daniel that might be the most dense of all, but also one that has made a big impact on Judaism, yes, but on Christianity and certain Christian groups for sure. So, as we go into this section of chapter 9, this is a genuine, heavy, numerological moment. 
lots of numbers. And I want to apologize in advance for those of you who are not great with numbers and just ask you to hang with me. I am going to try and make this as clear as I can. I even have some nifty little scribble math um, that I'm gonna show you so that I can hopefully help make this as clear as possible. So, as I noted, seven is a holy number. And when multiples of a holy number are used, that holy number, that holy figure, is actually emphasized and made even more important. Think back to Matthew chapter 18. When Jesus is asked, how many times am I supposed to forgive someone who hurts me? Seven times? What does Jesus say? No, not seven times. Seventy-seven times. So Jesus doesn't literally mean forgive 77 times, like the 78th time you don't have to forgive because you've forgiven enough. That's not what Jesus means, right? Jesus means forgive every time. And even seven times, which seems ridiculous, right? I mean, how many of us forgive someone for hurting us even a few times, let alone seven times? And of course not 77 times, but Jesus is reiterating with that holy number that forgiveness is core. Forgiveness is absolutely important. And it's so important that you forgive every time, not only until you've forgiven enough, but every single time we see a similar use of holy numbers in this second portion of Daniel chapter 9. Okay, the best way I can think to do this is we're just going to read a handful of verses and I'm going to flesh it out in three different ways. Okay, so let's turn to verse 24. We're going to go all the way through verse 27. Just read along with me and then we're going to try and unpack it all. 9 verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand, from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks, and for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. After the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering cease, and in their place shall be an abomination that desolates, until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are three ways to really understand this section. Okay. The first is literal. The second is prophetic, and the third is Christological, okay? That means having to do with Christ. I'm going to step through each, and I hope that it will be clear, or as my grandma used to say, clear as mud. Um, so we're going to start with literal, because that's sort of the easiest, I guess. Um, so if we take the text at face value, there are seven weeks between the time, the declaration that Jerusalem is to be rebuilt and restored until there is an anointed leader to restore it. Then there are 62 weeks of time 
when the anointed leader will rebuild the city, rebuild Jerusalem, until that anointed leader is cut down or killed, is the implication here. And then there's one week when the faithful will appeal to God to make the wrong right again for God's deliverance. Now remember, <laughs> these are numbers that are sacred, seven, right? And it's actually not a week in Hebrew. In English, we see week used, the word week. But actually, the word in Hebrew is seven or sevens. So, for example, what I mean is, in Hebrew, we don't actually use the word week, but, but seven sevens. So, seven weeks would be seven sevens in the Hebrew. 62 weeks would actually be 62 sevens in the Hebrew. That's important because the whole idea of this section is not to be literal and chronological, but as I said, chronographical. Because the chronographic impact here is that it's a medium amount of time, then a long amount of time, then a short amount of time. That's really what is happening right now. You've got the seven sevens, then the 62 sevens, then the one seven. <laughs> so, taken literally, so I'm trying to make sure that I am as clear as possible. That really does sum up the literal reading of the words, but really nobody interprets it this literally. There are two major interpretations. One is a simple prophetic interpretation that connects back to Jeremiah, the portion of Jeremiah that has been read at the beginning by Daniel that inspired his prayer. Jeremiah's prophecy, remember, is 70 years has to come between the exile, the beginning and the end of the exile. 70 weeks of years is actually what we find in Jeremiah. All right, here we go. Hang with me. If we use the idea of 70 weeks of years, which I know is confusing, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you a graphic in just one second, or I'm going to give you a sketch. Then what had been seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week, right, to get the 70, 70 weeks of years, seven plus 62 plus one, 70, becomes seven weeks of years, 62 weeks of years, and one week of years. That means that the prophetic interpretation actually indicates 490 total years of time. Now, how did we get that? Ready? Here is my fun sketch for you, and I'm gonna try and make sure I put this up right. Okay, yeah, there. One week of years is seven years, right? Seven weeks of years is 49 years. 62 weeks of years is 434 years. That's a total of 490 years of time. We all get this? 490 years is, in essence, the amount of time that happen or that occurs between the exile and the Roman destruction of the temple. Oh yes, my friends, this is a very interesting 
numerological predicament. Because 490 years basically means the time between Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and Antiochus Epiphanes leading into the Roman Empire. Think of it this way. The medium amount of time is Nebuchadnezzar taking the Israelites into exile. The big amount of time, that 400, and, I mean, I'm sorry, the 434 years of time, the 62 weeks of years, is actually the period of time after Cyrus of Persia frees the Israelites to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And then the final bit of time, that seven weeks of years, or yeah, sorry, the um, one week of years, which is seven years, is the period of time when either Antiochus Epiphanes is persecuting the Israelites, we saw some of that in chapter 8, or it could be understood as when the Roman Empire is persecuting the Israelites and then ultimately destroy the Second Temple in 70. All I can say is ask questions because the prophetic interpretation here does not fit the exact chronology. It does, however, fit a loose chronology of medium amount of time in the exile, long amount of time rebuilding the city, and short amount of time with the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes. It loosely fits that kind of timetable. Okay. Ask questions. I will try and be clear. And many of you may need to just kind of chew on this for a day or two and then ask a question, which is just fine. We'll deal more with this next week. We'll have time to do it. The third way of understanding this section and the second interpretive way of understanding this section is Christologically. Now, Christology is having to do with Christ, right? Ology, Christ, Christology. A Christological understanding of this passage of Daniel is very popular because for many, eh, many, yeah, a good number of Christian groups, especially more of the um, end of times groups, like say Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists and others, they believe that these prophecies can be understood literally and they are on the lookout. They're, they tend to be the kinds of groups that read these prophecies and then begin to predict the end of time because certain things are happening and that sure does sound like what Daniel said or that sure does sound like some piece of revelation. And so the end is coming and then the end doesn't come and then there's some reason why they had made a mistake in interpretation and then they just reinterpret and on and on and on. But a Christological understanding of this prophecy is something that's quite popular. That means that this prophecy of Daniel is understood by many Christian groups to actually predict or prophesy the Messiah, Jesus himself. The timeline can fit if we look at it very similarly to the weeks of years interpretation that I just explained, where you've got the um, seven weeks of years, 62 weeks of years, one week of years. Much of the way that this Christology, the Christological interpretation happens, stems from the book of Ezra. 
So what I want to do is read the first two verses of the book of Ezra because it remembers the end of the Israelite exile. Okay, so I'm just going to, don't worry about it, just mark down, this is Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's the end of the exile and the beginning of the shift back to Jerusalem. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict declared, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. This portion of Ezra, along with Chronicles and other bits, remembers the end of the exile as being an edict from Cyrus of Persia. This many times already in this study that Babylonian Empire is ultimately overtaken by the Persian Empire under the direction and control of Cyrus. Cyrus gets to Babylon and effectively says, hey, I don't need these Israelites anymore. And so go back home, go rebuild your temple. And some believe that Cyrus may have even helped to fund the rebuilding of the temple. We certainly see that implied here in Ezra, where Cyrus seems to be given a vision to send the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild a house to God in Judah. Okay, this moment has often been understood as the beginning of the seven and the 62 weeks, totaling 483 years, okay? So if we've got seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years, effectively, the seven weeks of years is the transition back to Jerusalem. The 62 weeks of years is the time after Jerusalem has been rebuilt, where Jerusalem is effectively thriving, but not everything is going well. And then that last week of years is actually the period that begins, sort of ends and begins with Jesus' baptism. The middle of it, when the anointed is cut off, is Jesus' crucifixion. And the rise of the prince is actually the Antichrist, or the Romans. <laughs> Obviously, we can interpret this in many different ways, but I want to show you a graphic that I found that is actually part of Jehovah's Witness um, web teaching series that might put this into a little more perspective. Look at this. As you see on the left side of your screen, there is effectively the word to restore Jerusalem coming from Cyrus to Ezra and of course Nehemiah and so, so on. Jerusalem is rebuilt after that period of seven weeks of years. And then you get the 62 weeks of years. Do you see that light gray bar to the medium gray bar? That 62 weeks of years is a period of time between the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the Messiah, Christ, coming onto the scene. Now, the final week of years is actually the period of time between Jesus' baptism, his crucifixion, and then the end of time. The end when the Antichrist, the prince, comes back that God will have to overthrow.
Does that all make sense? I have to admit to you, that's a little weird. I know. And I don't think most of us here are going to necessarily prescribe to that kind of interpretation. But I hope that you appreciate the way in which that interpretation has functioned over time to help understand the placement of Jesus within God's big story of salvation. That not only did Jeremiah predict some of this, but you see that in Daniel there's a revelation that Jesus the Messiah will come at some point at the end of those 70 weeks of years. And then John of Patmos in Revelation picks up this idea that the end of times is upon us and there are indications of the end all around us. The Antichrist is coming, is potentially already here, and that the faithful need to remain faithful to God. Okay. Let's take a breather. At the end of this class, I want us to be less concerned with whether or not the prophecies are real and more concerned with what Daniel chapter 9, Daniel in general, can actually tell us. When I read this passage, this book, I am less concerned with trying to fit these visions into actual historical chronology. And I am much more concerned to hear the deeper message of what Daniel is trying to, is what I think the book of Daniel is trying to say to us, which is, when the going gets tough, when we experience pain and heartbreak and uncertainty, when fear seems to be all around us and pulling us down, God never leaves our side. God is with us in the darkest places, in the deepest places, and that when we hit the bottom, we find that the bottom holds, that God is with us in the pit. God is the one who holds us when we reach the very worst, the very lowest points in our lives, and God is who then picks us back up. God is who redeems us. God is who delivers and saves us from the pain and the heartbreak and the tragedy of this world. And that's not meant to be some pie-in-the-sky idea. It's not meant to be escapism. It's not meant to take us off the hook for being good people in the world now. It's meant to give us hope, eternal and profound and all-encompassing hope that no matter what we experience in this world, God's with us every step of the way. Our hope lies in God's strength, not our strength, in God's goodness, not our goodness, that we are not the source of love, but we are the conduit of love in the world. We are the ones who get to be the reflection of God in the world that seems to be so far from God so often.
we are the hope because we have hope in God. God's promise of deliverance is one that's not meant to be this sensational, warmongering, oppressive kind of deliverance. Instead, God's deliverance is from our fear. God's deliverance is from our pain. God's deliverance and salvation means that what we see in front of us and what we experience in this world is not all there is. And especially when things are hard, we can rest assured that God's promise to us is that we will one day be redeemed completely. And that redemption is God's great promise to us. And so that's where I'd like to leave it today with Daniel chapter 9. I appreciate you hanging with me. I am going to venture a guess that there will be some questions about the weirdness of the weeks of years and all that sort of stuff. And so I encourage you to send Meredith an email. And if you are watching this on demand, you can actually comment in the fields on both YouTube and Facebook. And Meredith will check those comment threads before next week's study to get some of those questions as well. But otherwise, send her an email. She'll tally up those questions and we'll be able to address those next week as we begin chapter 10. I thank you all for being with me today. I love seeing you here at Bible study. Say hi to someone, check in with someone, connect with someone, love on someone today. And when you do so, you'll be reminding them of God's promise to all of us. God bless you all. I hope you have a wonderful week and join us on Sunday for good worship. Bye everyone.